0: Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit NorthMonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. You know what happened 16 years ago today? Hurricane Katrina. 16 years ago today, what are the odds? Uh, And Katrina, when it came ashore, a lot of people don't know this. It was a Category 5. It came ashore as a Category 3. The one that's coming in right now is a category two and I just read, I mean a category four and I just read that it's one mile per hour short of a category five making landfall right now uh, or at least later today. So we need to pray, don't we? We need to pray for our friends down in South Louisiana. And I thought it'd be appropriate for us to start that today. So let's pray together. Father, um, we live in a fallen world. We get that. You know, there's nothing safe about this world. We understand that. There's no place to go that's safe. We understand that the only place that we can go is in the shelter of your wing. Um, That we run to you, that you're a strong and mighty fortress. Um, And I pray for uh, our friends down south uh, who many have not had time to even get out. And I pray that that you would offer your divine protection for them. And that you would take care of those uh, people who are in right in the uh, the path of that storm, and Father, that you'd be with uh, the guys that are down there in the hospitals that are full of COVID patients. Um, they're just going to have to weather it. And I pray that you would protect those doctors and nurses and the patients. And Father, I pray for the for the policemen and the firemen and the electricians and all the people that are going to have to work to try to keep order and keep the thing from degenerating into chaos. I pray you'd be with them, and I pray you'd be with the church and the pastors and the, the church people who administer love and grace. I know uh, old Dennis Watson and Celebration Church down there, and I know how they have made such a difference in their community, and it started with Katrina. And I pray you'd use those churches again to light the way. And when our time comes, Father, that we'd be up to the challenge ourselves to go and to be a source of help. And uh, we thank you for the opportunity to be Jesus in these terrible situations. And uh, we just pray you would use us in Christ's name. Amen. Be in prayer for our folks down south, as I know you already are, and I know you're keeping an eye on that. You know, if I had to name one guy who had the greatest influence over my the way I pastor, the way I teach, the way I understand the Bible. It would have to be a guy named Charles Swindoll. Many of you haven't heard of him. But let me tell you, if you lived in the 80s and 90s or in the evangelical church, you would have heard of him because... I would think that he's probably in the top two or three people who were most influential in the 80s and 90s in the church. Chuck's still preaching today. He's 86 years old, preaching at Stonebriar Church. Just an amazing guy. His ministry is truly international. He does a radio ministry called Insight for Living. And I first came across Swindoll in 1980. I was a seminary student at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, just kind of going through the dials and came across this radio teacher and locked onto that and it was like here's a guy teaching the Bible in a fresh way and he's teaching the whole counsel of God it's not just the same you know Four spiritual laws that you hear every week, as important as those are, but he's walking through all of the scripture and he's teaching the whole counsel of God. And he's doing it with a a light heart and he's doing it with an insightful way. And I'm like, this is what I've been looking for. And so I began to listen to him faithfully. A couple of years later, somebody handed me a Swindoll book, a lady in our church, Billy Smith gave me a Swindoll book. I think it was Improving Your Serve. And I started reading Swindoll and I, I probably read 20 or 30 of his books. In fact, I had to quit reading them because I couldn't tell where I stopped and Swindoll started, you know, and I'm starting to starting to think like the guy, you know, and I know God didn't want me to be somebody else. And, and uh, so in the mid-90s, Swindoll... Uh, left his church in Fullerton, California and assumed the the role of president of Dallas Theological Seminary. And about that time, I enrolled in Dallas Theological Seminary as a doctoral candidate. And so I'm doing my work there. Swindoll's the president there. I still never met the guy. I'd heard him preach in person. Ironically, Warren and I went to the same event. There were 20,000 people at Reunion Arena there to hear Swindoll preach. I mean, this is the influence this guy had. And so I'm at DTS and I'm in a class one day and this guy walks into class and he says, look, we're trying to get together a new class for next semester. I think it was called topical expository preaching. And he was trying to encourage some of us guys to to be interested in taking that class. And so they were going to do a bit of a commercial over lunch. They were going to offer lunch. And he and the guy said, and President Swindoll may be there. And I'm like, wait, what? They said, yeah, President Swindoll may be there. So if you guys want to meet Swindoll, you can come to lunch. I'm like, I'm down. So after class is over, a guy comes up to me and he says, "Where, where are we going for lunch? And I said, I'm going to the cafeteria. I'm going to meet Swindoll. He said, he's not going to be there. He said, that's just what they say to get you to come listen to their advertisement for the class next year. He said, let's go find some lunch. I said, nope. If there's a chance, I'm there. And I walked into that cafeteria that afternoon, that, that lunchtime, and I looked up and there were two people sitting at the table, one other student from our class and President Swindoll. And I walked over, and I said, hey, I'm Bill Dye. And he said, I'm Chuck Swindoll. And I'm like, yeah, I think I knew that. But um, And so I sat down, and for the next hour and a half, he gave us his undivided attention. He, he made this statement. He said, you know, I'm trying to learn wherever I am to be all there, and I want you guys to know I'm all here right now. Whatever you guys want to talk about, let's talk about it. And for the next hour and a half, we asked him every question we could think about. You know, what do you have for breakfast? You know, I, I mean, I was, I was trying to come up with stuff just listening to this guy. And it was such a rich and powerful moment for me that really marked me for a long period of time that I finally got to meet and really hear the heart of this mentor who had had such an important uh, part of my life and development. And you know, I often think about that when I think about the gospel, because the gospel works the exact same way. All those guys in that class We're sitting in that class when that guy walked in and he said, if you want to meet Swindoll, go to go to lunch. We're going to provide lunch and he may be there. And out of all that class, 20 or so guys that could have gone and met Swindoll that day, only two of us showed up. And Jesus says the gospel is exactly like that, that the gospel has gone out into all the world. It's like a wedding feast and the invitations go out and everybody's too busy and nobody really believes it. And everybody's kind of doing their own thing and they don't really kind of have time to get around to it. And Jesus says, when nobody comes, he's going to send his people into the highways and byways and compel them to come. But that's exactly how the gospel works. Many are called but few are chosen. And when you understand that concept of chosen to be the Hebrew idea of of chosen, that means that I am in a privileged position with God, not because of my birthright, but because of my rebirthright. So when I choose Christ, when I choose Christ by faith, I become chosen. And yet many have been called, but few are chosen because so few respond to the call. And that's really the essence of Romans chapter 10. Let's go to Romans 10, verses 11 through 21. Now remember, this whole thing is related to the Jews. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans are all about why the Jews are outside looking in, even though they were the promised ones, even though they were the, quote, chosen ones. Now in the New Covenant, they're on the outside looking in. And in Romans 9, Paul points out that they were chained to the thinking that because of their birthright, because of the fact that they were children of Abraham, that they had a privileged position with God, and in addition to that, that that their performance or the fact that they had the law and that they were keeping the law would somehow put them in right standing with God. And then in chapter 10, he becomes very specific and clear, and he says salvation comes uh, back around to faith. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, believe, uh, uh, con- confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart uh, that God raised Him from the dead, and it says you shall be saved. So there's no questions. And then we come to Romans ten thirteen, and this is the verse we ended on last time. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, salvation is not for a privileged few. Got it? And salvation is not earned through good works. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's available for everyone. So then the question comes up, well, then why isn't everyone saved? And he says three things in this part of Romans chapter 10. He's, he's, he's talking about the call. And he says, first of all, you got to hear the call. Secondly, you got to heed the call. And then third, you got to sound the call. So let's take those in order. First, you have to hear the call. Now, the last time we ended with that beautiful word, whosoever, in verse 11, for the Scripture says, everyone, whosoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. That's New, Internet, uh, New English translation. In other words, it's open to everyone. Everyone. Now, I know I've got some friends who who say that God calls some to election and others to destruction. They'll point back to Romans chapter 9, specifically verse 13. And it says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, even before they had done anything good or bad. And you've got to be really careful with context, okay? Whenever you read the Bible, you have to understand there's a context. There's a context to the whole Bible. There's a context to the New Testament. There's a context to the Old Testament. There's a context to the specific book. There's a context in the specific chapter. And then sometimes those chapters are clumped together. And and so there is a broader context here. You can't just take that verse, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, out of context and deal with that only as if that's one exclusive principle. Because right after he says that in Romans 10, he says, uh, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you shall be saved. So it's everyone, okay? and so what we got to do is back up and sort of pick this apart a little bit Paul isn't talking about salvation in that particular illustration he's talking about God's sovereign plan for the redemption of the world and he's using that to illustrate that works won't get you to heaven Uh, the point was that you can't earn it through your performance look he says Jacob have I loved Esau have hated before they had done anything you got it Because the Jews were all wrapped up in the concept of of works and, and keeping the law. But he says the choice was made before they had done anything. So does he choose some and then reject others? Well, there's two powerful theological principles at work here. One is the sovereignty of God. and We talked about this a month or so ago when we talked about Romans 9. And I don't pretend that you still remember any of that. You know, they say that the average sermon is forgotten by the time you get to your car. So I'm wondering what I'm even doing up here sometimes. (laughs) It's really sad. And and I have to admit, sometimes I'm like, what did I talk about last week? But there's two important principles. And and another great teacher at Dallas Theological Seminary that I had was a guy named Howard Hendricks, and I had him for a couple of classes. And he said in one of the classes, he said, the true test of a first rate mind is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in tension and live with that tension. And these are two opposing ideas that live in tension. The first is the sovereignty of God. That means that God can do whatever God wants to do. God can call whomever he wants to call, he can use whatever he wants to do. I mean, with Jonah, he used a worm. It says, God ordained a worm. In Jonah's case, that was a divinely ordained worm. In Balaam's case, he ordained a donkey. And the donkey spoke to him. so God can use whatever he wants, which is beautiful news for us because that means he can use us too. you got to think, if God can use a worm and a donkey, then there's hope for me. But the second concept is the justice of God. God can choose whomever he wants, but his choices are always governed by his wisdom. You see, he's sovereign, but he's not capricious. And so when God chose Jacob, we know by the nature and character of God that he could have chosen Esau, I mean, he certainly can choose whomever he wants. But by the fact that he chose Jacob, we know immediately that Jacob was the better choice. And there are clues to why Jacob was the better choice. Uh, There are descriptions of these two men in the book of Genesis. And it says this about Jacob. It says that he was a man of peace. And that word is tome. It's the word that has to do with the spiritual orientation. So Jacob on the outside was a conniving, manipulative, kind of nasty character. But on the inside, at the core of his heart, his heart was inclined towards spiritual things. And you see that played out in his life. Every time he gets into a crisis, he goes to the Father. He goes to the Lord. Esau, on the other hand, by all outward signs, was the perfect depiction of the good old boy. And everybody liked Esau. He probably hit home runs in church league softball. He, uh, you know, could catch all the fish and kill all the deer and could make the perfect turkey sound so the turkeys come in. I mean, Esau was that guy. But there was no spiritual inclination in Esau's life. You never, ever read that Esau prayed or that he called out to God or that he had any spiritual inclination at all. And so what we, what we learn from that is before they had done anything, God selected Jacob because in his foreknowledge, he could see into his heart. And it always comes back to the heart. God's always about the heart. He's always after the heart. And this is what the Jews didn't get. They thought it was about privilege and pedigree and performance that put them in right standing with God, but it doesn't work that way. And because of that, they crashed on the cornerstone, because they couldn't accept Him by faith, Romans 9, 31, 32. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And Jesus said that He's the cornerstone, and, and they're, He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Because you can only come to God by faith. You're not going to work your way into it. And so now we're at chapter 10, and things clear up immensely. The net says, everyone, New English translation, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice it doesn't say everyone chosen by God. It says everyone who believes. And salvation is open for everyone. Whoever means, you know know what whoever means? It means whoever. It means anybody. It means you. It means me. It means everybody. Verse 12, for there is no distinction. And this was revolutionary because everything in the Jewish mind was about distinction, the the distinction between the, the Jews and everyone else, which were the Gentiles. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. He uses Greek here instead of Gentile. For the same Lord is the Lord of all who richly blesses all. Do you see that word all? The same Lord who's the Lord of all richly blesses all who will call on Him. And Paul builds on this in Colossians 3, he said it's a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. Barbarian, that's an interesting word. In the Greek mind, like the Jewish mind, there were only two kinds of people. There were Greeks and barbarians. And that word barbarian is, is what we call an onomatopoeia. It's a word that's name sounds like the word. And so a barbarian was one who spoke barbar which was a language that was unintelligible to the Greek, but he was a barbarian. And he says there's no distinction between that, the Scythian, the slave, the free man, but Christ is all and in all. And this isn't only true of Jews and Gentiles. It's true of everything. And, and here's our problem. We love to make distinctions and we build on those distinctions and we make those distinctions the defining thing and the important thing. That's what the Jews did. We're all Jew, everybody else is that. The Greeks said, We're all Greeks, everybody else is a barbarian. And we create these distinctions, and by doing that, we separate from one another. We love it white and black, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, cool and uncool. White-collar, blue-collar, smart, dumb, liberal, conservative, pretty, ugly. But here's the thing you need to understand. God doesn't know such distinctions. Whoever is everyone. And we got to get off of this divisive thing that we're into, particularly in the area of race. we got to stop it. Tony Evans really helped me. I don't know of anybody that is walking the tightrope of the, of the problems of race in America right now better than Tony Evans. He said this, man, it was so good. He said, stop saying that God is colorblind. God's not colorblind. Then he pointed to Revelation 7, 9. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. He said, look, every nation, every tribe, he sees it. God's not colorblind, but he's also not blinded by color, Tony Evans said. If you make a distinction based on color, then you are a racist. If you identify as a white Christian, then you have made race the most important distinction. If you identify as a black Christian, then you have made race the most important distinction. It is technically incorrect to call yourself a quote black Christian or a quote white Christian or a quote Hispanic Christian. Then you make your color or culture an adjective. It's the job of the adjective to modify the noun. If you put Christianity in the noun position and your color or culture in the adjective position you have to keep shaping the noun so that it looks like the adjective that describes it so if your color stays in the adjectival position you got to keep shaping Christianity to look black or to look white or to look red your identity is not in your race your background or your pocketbook your identity first is in Christ If we play to a white identity, if we play to a black identity, if we play to a socioeconomic identity, then we've placed our identity distinctions ahead of the identity of Christ. The gospel is open to all, regardless of your race, regardless of your disgrace. You see, a lot of people Think that maybe God doesn't love them because they weren't born the right way. Or even more people think that God doesn't love them because of something they've done, their disgrace. And you might have wrecked or ruined your whole life or feel as if you have. God can't love me because I've had an abortion. God can't love me because I cheated my dad out of money. God won't accept me because I've messed up morally or I've driven everyone that loves me away or I can't control my addiction or I let my kids down or what or what or what. Here it is. The love of Christ transcends race and disgrace. Look at verse 13 again. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It just can't get any clearer than that. And so the call of the gospel goes out. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God by faith is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, but there's a second side to that. You have to hear that call. And listen, if you're here today, you've heard the call. You've been called. Now you have to heed the call. That's that second thing. Skip down to verse 16. We'll come back to verse 14 in a minute. I want to do something a little different. In verse 16, he says, however, they did not all heed the good news. Do you got that? Why are the Jews on the outside looking in? It's not because they didn't hear the call. It's not because they didn't hear about Jesus. Because they didn't heed the call. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And this is seminal and transformational. Faith comes when you hear the word of God. I don't know of anything that's truly transformational apart from the word of God. There are certain things you can do to get yourself into better shape. Obviously, some of us need to do some more of that. And there are some things you can do to get your mind in a better place. Obviously, there are things that you can do to become a more positive and optimistic person. But there's nothing transformational like the Word of God. Because it literally changes the way you see life and the way you see yourself. And once you hear the Word, you become responsible for what you've heard. Once you hear the word, you become responsible. So when you hear the call, next step is heed the call. Look at verse 18. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Paul's trying to argue for the Jews. Indeed, they have. And We're back to them. Paul's saying they've heard the gospel. They're not not without excuse. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses said, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding will I anger. So he's saying, you know, God's using the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Verse 21, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Why are they disobedient and obstinate? They won't heed the call. And the Jews' unbelief kept them from the power of grace. And here's the part I don't want you to miss, okay? If God didn't spare His promised chosen ones, why would you ever think He would spare you? I mean, I know people who've been in church for their whole life. And you talk to them about the call of God over their life, and they're like, well, my daddy was a deacon. My granddaddy was a preacher. Man, he scared us all, you know. Mama worked in GAs. You know, I've been at that church since the doors were open. You know, I had a drug problem. I got drugged to church, you know. You've heard all that, right? Right? So why haven't you heeded the call? Look, you can sit in these chairs for 100 years. If you don't heed the call, then it's meaningless. It's not enough just to hear. And some of you have heard the gospel your whole life. You need to heed the gospel. You have to act on what you know. You have to come to a point in your life where you say, you know what, that's for me. That's not, I'm not, you know, (laughs) well, I'm glad. You know, I'm glad my husband heard that today, preacher. He really needed that. Well, you know, or you stepped all over my toes. Well, I didn't step on enough of you then because you didn't heed the call. You got to heed the call. You got to come to a point in your life where you say, "Okay, I'm quit playing games. Here I am, Jesus. Best I know how. You got me. I'm all yours." And now listen, here's that third thing. Cuz this is where the rest of us are. Maybe you've heard the call, maybe you've heeded the call. Here it is. When you when you hear the call and heed the call, you have to give the call. You sound the call. In other words, you become the caller. Let's back up and catch that middle section that I skipped. Go back up to verse 13. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's that part of the call. But he's quoting Joel 2.32. And Joel 2.32 says this, and it will come about that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. You say, well, what's the difference there? Here's the distinction. The New Testament was written in Greek. You got that? Koine Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Got that? So in the New Testament, that word for call that Paul uses is epikaleo. It means to, uh, to call upon. And so the idea is that I'm calling upon the name of Jesus for salvation. The word Joel used is a Hebrew word, korah, and it means to call out. It's a little bit different. And so the idea is, and there's a beautiful double entendre, a beautiful double meaning here, is that in the moment that I call upon Christ, I also call out to Christ and call out for Christ. So I call upon Christ for my salvation. And by doing that, I call out Christ for the lost. You got it? And that's the way they understood The personal relationship with Christ, it was never a secret thing. It was never a quiet, silent thing. It was never a personal thing. Baptism was always done publicly. We messed it up when we brought it into church. It was done at the river. It was done in the marketplace. It was done in the public arena. So that when I went into that water, I'm calling upon the name of Jesus. And everybody watching that knows that guy's supposed to be different now. But it's not just that I'm calling upon the name of Jesus. I'm also calling out Jesus. And I'm calling out Jesus into the glory of God to everybody that can listen. If you want your life changed, this is the way to get your life changed. I've changed. Do you see the? Do you feel the double meaning? And so, to call upon Jesus is to call out Jesus. That's why he said, "Unless you'll confess me before men, I won't confess you before the Father." The grace I claim be- becomes the grace I proclaim. So you have to hear the call, you have to heed the call, and then you become the one that calls. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And I know what you're thinking. There for a second I was feeling convicted, but then he just mentioned preachers, and that's not me. <laughs> right? I'm not a preacher. BJ Thomas had this old song years ago, and the lyrics went like this: the Lord is living inside my heart, but that don't mean I've been ordained. And there's a lot of people that go, hey, I got Jesus, but that don't make me the preacher. I got some bad news for you. That word's not talking about the position of the preacher. It's talking about the responsibility of the preacher. It's not where he stands, it's what he does. In fact, the word had to do with uh, in the old days before they had Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff, and before they had printed press and all of that stuff. If a king had an edict or a decree and he needed to send it out to his whole kingdom, they had these guys that would go, and these guys would walk into town. And you know what they were called? They were called the Karudma. Same word. And then the guys that would walk into the public marketplace and they'd roll open the scroll and they would say, What? Hear ye, hear ye. And they would proclaim the news of the king. That's the exact same thing he's saying about us. The word simply means herald. And that's not a preacher, that's all of us. And so you are God's chosen instrument of the gospel because you have a unique influence nobody else has. Verse 15, how will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And so God has put this thing together in such a way that every generation of believers must carry the message to their own world. It's such an amazing thing, but every generation of the church is totally dependent upon that generation's willingness to give the call if we don't give the call to our generation after we're gone the church dies and god has always kept the church one generation from death and it all falls apart if we quit calling They cannot heed if they don't hear, and they cannot hear if we stop calling. This is what Paul's talking about. And so the only limitation to the gospel is the presentation of the gospel. The only thing that will limit the power of the gospel is our unwillingness to share it. I know what you're thinking. I'll mess it up. I'm just not skillful. I can't do it. Earl Palmer helped me with this. He was a pastor that defended the church against critics who dismissed it for its hypocrisy and its inabilities to rise to the level of the New Testament standards. He was pastoring in this unsophisticated, small church in California. And here's how he explained it. When the Milpitas High School Orchestra attempts Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the result is Appalling. I would not be surprised if the performance made old Ludwig roll over in his grave despite his deafness. You might ask, why bother? Why inflict on those poor kids the terrible burden of trying to render what the immortal Beethoven had in mind? Not even the great Chicago Symphony Orchestra can attain that perfection. My answer is this. The Milpitas High School Orchestra will give some people in that audience their only encounter with Beethoven's Great Ninth Symphony. Far from perfection, it is nevertheless the only way they will hear Beethoven's message. I try to remember that when I offer the call. I might get it wrong and I might mess it up. But if I don't do it, if I don't even try, then they'll never hear And if they don't hear, how can they heed? And so it falls back to me to do the best I can. And here's the truth. The people that love you would rather hear a less than perfect retelling of the gospel from you than a slick presentation from from some unknown professional. Did you hear that? The people that love you would rather hear a less than perfect rendition of the gospel from you Than some slick presentation from some professional that they don't even know. You are the message. So tell your story. If you've heard the call and you've heeded the call, then you become the caller. And so we got to hear the call. You're here today you're listening online or on the radio, you heard the call. God loves you. He's got a plan for your life. Doesn't get any simpler than that. Have you heeded that call? What are you going to do about it? And if you have heeded that call, then go tell. Who is there in your life right now that needs to hear the gospel? Who is there in your life that you love that you know they need to hear your story. Will you just make a simple confession to the Father, God, this week? Don't put it off this week. I'm going to do it. So help me, Jesus. I'm going to mess it up, whatever. I'm going to do it. I'm going to give the call. So here's our commitment. If you don't know Christ right now, I don't care how long you've been in church. I love what the old... The old revival evangelist used to say, he said, sitting in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a Buick. I like that. Those guys were, they were like church signs. They were weird but interesting. Have you ever accepted Jesus as your Savior? Then right at the close of this service, I want you to go through these doors and talk to somebody in that belonging area. You may not know even what to say or what to do. It doesn't matter. They'll help you. They'll walk with you. You need to heed the call. And if you've heeded the call, who are you going to tell? Let's just pray together. Father, we are before you now in this holy moment with the power of your Holy Spirit resident in this place. Our minds have been filled with a thousand different things. With covid Afghanistan, hurricanes. But in this moment, we push all that aside and we're before you, totally before you. And in this moment, Father, the call has gone out. And I pray for those that need to heed that call. In this moment, they would just say, just best they can, God, I confess my sin. I proclaim you as Lord, Change my life. Father, the rest of us who know Jesus because somebody else was courageous enough to give the call to us and we heard it and heeded it. Father, there's somebody in our life. Put that person on our heart right now and burn it in us so much that we will not rest until we share it. Don't let us off the hook. Father, don't let us make excuses. We're going to share that call best we can, with the most honesty and sincerity we can, we're going to tell our story. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.